We gather every day at home, work, school, in our communities, and yet we spend very little time thinking about why and how we come together. How we come together defines how we connect to each other as friends, colleagues, neighbors, and citizens. Gatherings shape how we understand, make sense of, and act in the world. At a recent Ivy Ideas Night, founder of Thrive Labs, Priya Parker, discussed an innovative approach to make gatherings both meaningful and memorable. She addresses the questions not often asked, questions that are essential for us to come together to affect change, create lasting connections, and make gatherings remarkable. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer. may not. Look around. Say hello. And you can sit back down. If you moved to DC in the past year, stand up. Welcome. And just tell us your name. Just keep standing. Quick name and city you came from. Wow. Oh. I'm Parker. I just moved from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Leah. I moved here from Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you have lived in D.C. for 10 years or more, stand up. If you were born in D.C., stay standing. <laughs> and tell us your name and the hospital you were born in. We can start in the back. If you came tonight with someone you love, stand up. <laughs> Sorry if it's awkward. <laughs> and you can sit back down. Exactly. Yes, you can love yourself. You can stand. If you don't know anyone in the room, stand up. Welcome. <laughs> so love them after this. If you've ever ghosted anyone, <laughs> stand up. Okay. And you can step back down. If you've ever, if you've ever been ghosted. Stand up. Look around. 
and sit back down. If you've never been ghosted and you've never ghosted anybody, stand up. <laughs> okay. If you consider yourself a troublemaker, stand up. <laughs> and look around. And you sit back down. If you consider yourself a smoother over, a smoother over, stand up and look around. It means like if you if you think of yourself as a peace builder or somebody who tries to smooth things over in general, whatever it means to you. Sit back down. If you stood for both a troublemaker and a smoother over, stand up. So these are the people in the room. Keep stay standing. These are the people in the room that are more likely to be to have transformative conversations. And that's because they're both willing to pro poke and prod and lean into heat. And they're also willing to heal and smooth over and come together. And transformative conversations and transformative gatherings need both. And sit back down. So five years ago, I set out to ask a question and to answer a question, what creates transformative gatherings? Why do some gatherings take off for the people that are in them and others don't? Why do you go to 15 different weddings over the last five years, and some of them stick out in your mind at these beautiful, iconic moments, and others you literally can't remember anything about it. And I decided to go on a, on a journey to interview over 100 gatherers around the world who don't necessarily think of themselves as gatherers and ask this question, what creates transformative experiences for other people when you're trying to do something on purpose? Um, I interviewed rabbis, I interviewed a dominatrix, I interviewed a photographer, it's true, my husband was worried about that interview. Um, I interviewed a, uh, a photographer who gets seven minutes with a head of state, with, with Bill Clinton or with Obama or with Putin or Ahmadinejad, and has to figure out in a hotel room right before all of the security is gonna come back in, how does he capture that one moment where the head of the, the, the world leader, the, the head of state, takes off or removes his or her mask? It even from a microcosm so that the lens can capture it. Um, and I asked all of these people, how do you actually create transformation for other people? I asked this question because for my entire life, I've been very, very curious about how and when people come together and how and when people come apart. I asked this question because I come from people who came together for a limited amount of time, for 12 years, my parents, and then they came apart. Um, I'm biracial, I'm half Indian, half white American. My father's from Waterloo, Iowa. My mother's from Benares, um, India. And I was born in Zimbabwe because my mother is an anthropologist and my father is a hydrologist and their common Venn diagram at the time was fishing villages because there was a lot of water for the hydrologist um, and there was a lot of people for the anthropologist. <laughs> You're like, I got you. <laughs> And for 12 years, I lived with them, actually for nine years, when they were married. And then they separated, divorced, and within three years, they had both remarried and remarried radically different people, but people who were much more similar to their kind of origin families. My mother remarried a British, white British guy, but still from a values perspective, very similar. And my father remarried a white American, and they had joint custody. So every two, every two weeks, on Friday afternoons, I'd go back and forth between these two homes. 
and one home became this kind of Indian, British, liberal, atheist, Buddhist, vegetarian, incense burning, uh, <laughs> Democrat, sort of staunch progressive family. And the other was a joint family, so I had step-siblings, and they were white, evangelical Christian, Republican, conservative, two twice-a-week church-going, Trump-voting family. And I was fully part of both. My name is Priya Parker. You can tell which side came from which. <laughs> and it perhaps is no uh, accident that I ended up in the field of conflict resolution. Um, if I were to be in the audience and asked if I'm a troublemaker or a smoother over, I have always been a smoother over, smoother or over. Um, it was always the way that I survived being part of these radically different places. But I, because I was conflict averse, I sought out the field of conflict resolution to begin understanding how do you actually transform groups that are stuck? How do you actually bring people together when bringing people together is hard? And so I wrote this book, The Art of Gathering, to both bring in my lens as a facilitator, but also to go out into the world and ask all of these people what actually creates transformative experiences for groups in a wide variety of contexts. In my own work, I, my professionally, I'm a group conflict resolution facilitator. So I work with groups that are in conflict with each other, usually about some element of identity. In my early career, it was related to kind of obvious identity. So race in America, or Muslim Hindu riots in Gujarat, or Arab American European relationships that were sort of racial or ethnic ideological identity. Over time, I've started to work with companies and organizations and political movements where the conflicts are much more subtle. They're much more underneath. They, we all look sort of similar on the surface, but actually within the abortion rights movement, there's radical differences between whether or not this should be a justice-based movement or a rights-based movement. And, and you'd be amazed by how much conflict there is internally to communities. And so in this book, I basically, when I, as I began to ask people over and over and over again, outside of my own field, what creates transformative experiences, I began to see some patterns. So the first pattern is the idea of heat. Transformative experiences have some amount of risk in them. It can be physical risk. So have any of you done Tough Mudders? Wow. And tell us what Tough Mudders is. Tell us your name and what is, a what is Tough Mudders? And, and how is it ridiculous to give us a little, how is it ridiculous? What do they make you do? Oh, gosh. Well, so when I was like, I mean, I'm in no, by no means an athlete or anything like that, but I thought it's, but it's, it's fun. I mean, there's, you get down, you get dirty, it's tiring, but it's, it's a team building experience. So you are working with a ton of people who are charging for the goal of doing it and having a good time. Yep. And so Tough Mudders is this two day, usually two-day experience, but the, the team building is things like swimming in ice buckets or swimming through and getting electrocuted by the, by the wires in the water, doing extremely physical, physically risky stuff. Um, risk can be psychological risk. Risk can be, it can be emotional risk, so showing more of yourself, deciding to show the part of you that's not as well-baked rather than the shiny, you know, perfectly coiffed side. But basically, over and over and over again, I heard from people that you have to have some amount of risk in your gatherings in order for them to take off. I, one of the people I interviewed is a woman named Ida Benedito. Um, she's about 5'1", redheaded, um, and uh, grew up in, in the Upper West Side of New York and basically began to realize she grew up in a Catholic family, um, and every day after school, she would uh, literally take off her uniform from Catholic school, put on her like, grunge jeans, take, down, take the train downtown, and go hang out in the Lower East Side. 
Um, and what she started to realize is over the course of her life, she would go between different worlds, and the places that she felt most alive were the places that people took interesting risks. So professionally, she calls herself now a transgression consultant. She literally, <laughs> think about the McKinsey for risk. She, <laughs> um, anybody, any McKinsey consultants or consultants in here? <laughs> like former. Um, so, so she creates these gatherings for groups um, that help them take safe risks in ways that help them tr transgress or transpose boundaries that otherwise they wouldn't do. So one of the one of the gatherings that she hosts is called the Timothy Convention. It's a it's a it's an hour gathering at the Waldorf Astoria. It's basically think of it as a pop up flash mob birthday party. Um, people are told to show up at 8 p.m. dressed in a black tie, and in, and are given a sheet of paper with 10 prompts, and they increase in risk. So one of them might be um, take silverware from the restaurant. They eventually return it. Um, another one might be there's a wedding on the third floor. Crash it for three points, give a toast to the bride for five. Um, go into a maid's room and take a selfie in the maid's quarters. And by the way, most of those are they're locked, right? So they're trying to figure out. Um, go, uh, go into the service elevator. Figure out how to get onto the roof of the Waldorf Astoria. So it gets increasingly psychologically, emotionally, socially, and physically riskier over the course of an hour. And so when I sat down with Ida, and I'd heard of her from, she's sort of one of the better known underground, ironically, better known underground experience designers. Um, and I asked her, you know, what can we learn from you? What if I'm not going to necessarily have people show up at the Waldorf Astoria, how can I do what you do, but in, at my dinner party or at my birthday party or in my, in my conference? And she said, I ask four questions at the beginning of every gathering. The first, well before when I'm planning it. What is this group avoiding? The second. What is the gift in helping them face it? The third, what is the risk in helping them face it? And the fourth, is the gift worth the risk? I um, thought about how those ideas applied to my own work. And I, uh, in one of the, I worked with an architecture firm that is a 70-year-old architecture firm. And they brought me in because they were having conflict, but they couldn't, it, you couldn't tell from the surface of it. Everybody's extraordinarily polite. If I tried to kind of get them to argue a little bit, everyone would recede. The culture and the norm of the, of, the, of the context of the architecture firm was one of politeness. And so I went in, and what they were trying to figure out is, do we in our future want to be an architecture firm? Do we want to be bricks and mortar and, and continue to literally build buildings? Or do we want to be an experienced design firm? Do we want to experience, you know, create experiences for people? Because there's too many buildings in the world and we actually shouldn't be building more stuff. And so I, I went in, it was a room like this, and everybody's sitting in a circle, about 35 architects. And I first started to bring in heat. I knew what they were avoiding. They're avoiding actually having this conversation. So what were they trying to avoid? They're avoid having a, making a decision and perhaps having an actual argument about the future of the firm because there was, there was great risk in that conversation. What was the risk? The risk was if they actually made a decision, they would have to have different clients. They would probably fire people. They would probably hire certain people. They would change the nature of their identity of the firm. And was the gift worth the risk? Well, right now, at the point, they were, they were stagnating as a firm. They were ambivalent. They were trying to do both. They were trying to do both experience design and architecture. So they went, they left. They, I was trying to have a conversation just normally, it, normally in the sense of asking them about what they thought the future of the firm should be. And they left for the coffee break and my client whispered in my ear, Priya, we need more heat. And so I, I thought quickly and I thought, okay, 
their norm in their company is one of politeness. They're, they've been told more than anything that we need to treat each other well, and no one wanted to kind of be the one in the middle of 30 people to actually say, I think we should be this kind of firm. And so I decided to create a temporary alternative world. We created a cage match for this group. So they came back in. We had Rocky music, music playing. They didn't know what was happening, so part of the idea was to kind of do something that was unexpected. Um, two people on my team threw towels from they, they took from the bathroom. They threw towels around their, their shoulders. Two other co were assigned coaches, and they started like massaging the guys. There were two men's guys' shoulders. And in that moment, as a facilitator, I, I took a risk. I didn't know if they were going to be like, you know, what the heck is this, versus if they were going to go with it. And thank God they went with it. And basically, in, a, in the course of about a minute, I began to shift what they thought this gathering was. I shifted the rules of the game from a meeting into a cage match. And all of a sudden, people who were sitting very formally were kind of like, you know, moving and wrestling and laughing and like laughing kind of nervously and moving around. And, I, and they didn't know if I meant a physical cage match or, or an intellectual cage match. And, and, we, <laughs> and we put posters on both sides of the wall. This is all in a 15-minute break. We photoshopped a body and a head. And so we called one wrestler the body for bricks and mortar architecture, and the other one the head for experience design. Um, and the rules were this. And so we, we set up blue tape, so it created an actual physical space, and said, OK, the, the body, you have three minutes to make the strongest argument for the future of, the, of a bricks and, art, uh, bricks and mortar architecture firm. And then for the head, you have three minutes to, to do the strongest argument for an experience design. So they started. Now, the rule that we created for that group was that everybody else had to choose a side based on the argument. And in this context, no one would ever show what they actually believed because of the risks that it might take. And so, but, be, but if I had just said, what do you think, they, would, they were all hedging. But because we created this alternative gathering for about 20 minutes, all of a sudden we changed the, the, the dynamics so they could see actually what is the strongest argument without people actually being emotionally involved. Um, I thought back to Ida's question, and, and they made a decision. They decided that they wanted to hunker down on the body, on the bricks and mortar architecture, and that experience design was a trend that they thought would pass, um, which was a bold decision. And so one of the things that I realized in terms of risk is as I spoke to people, as I spoke to the dominatrix in particular, as I spoke to the rabbi, many of these people think about how do you host a gathering? How do you host a family reunion? How do you host a dinner party? Where you begin to allow heat and risk in the conversations that you ask, in the questions that you ask, so that people are actually talking about the things that matter. In a, as a conference organizer, or in, you know, Ivy creates, you know, right now we're in a gathering. One of the ways you can create risk, depending on your goal of your, of your, um, of your gathering, is to actually extend the Q&A time. So in co corporations or in companies, one of the ways we mitigate risk is to make sure that no one has any time to ask any questions, right? You sort of mute the audience. On a conference call, if you think of it as a virtual gathering, the mute button is actually the biggest form of risk, whether to put it on or off for the, for the sort of command post. And so in every type of gathering, regardless of what you're bringing people together, there are moments where you can ex expand and share power, where you can ask people questions that they wouldn't otherwise ask, and that you can do it with care. The second type of risk is is actually psychological risk, and particularly a form of risk that I love in gatherings that are, are extraordinarily transformative, is intimacy. So kind of taking down the, the mask, if you will. One of the things that I experimented with in this journey is the idea of how do you at conferences, how many of you have been to a conference in the last month? And how many of you had a moment where you uh, deeply connected with someone there? 
and uh, tell us about it, what happened. And tell us your name. My name is Encore. So I do AI and machine learning. I work with Open Source as a computer vision project trying to make the money for our state. I'm one of the three big projects that are there. And I also do a lot of research. And uh, <coughs> I don't know how you guys feel about the project vision that the Open Source has, but we do like the first stadium. And then a lot of people with the letters requesting that we do not be associated with anything that makes us <laughs> yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I don't know if you could hear all of that, but um, but it, that story that Encore just told to me is an example of heat. It's a moment and proximity. It's a moment where two different people at a Google, or at, not at a Google conference, but at a conference where you, you met somebody who was dealing with a, a matter that all of us care about nationally at some level. Google is a symbol of this larger problem of do I work on something that down the road has an unintended effect, in this case of killing people, but all of us are part of a chain of, of something that might end up being used in a way that we didn't originally intend, right? And in this case, you had proximity to a conversation with, that you could actually talk about and have something that was relatively controversial. Um, so going back, thank you for the example. So in conferences, um, I'm part of the World Economic Forum Council, Global Agenda Council on Values. You can imagine what the acronym is. And I would go to these various conferences, and at least my experience of it was you go in and everybody, even though we're talking about values, we're talking about new models of leadership, we're talking about young people, and you walk in and, and everybody is extraordinarily stiff and basically promoting themselves saying like, this is my job, this is my this, this is my that, my, I'm you know, series A, series B, like this is inve basically invest in me, invest in me, invest in me, what, regardless of what that investment looks like. Um, and we, a couple of colleagues and I thought, well, this is a, not a great way to actually spend time together. We're not actually talking about the things we're, we've been brought together for. So we decided, how could we actually hack the conference? And so we hosted a dinner the night before to try to change the norms of what was happening at this conference. And we brought together 15 people around a dinner table rather than in a conference uh, room and chose a theme. In that case, it was a good life. Um, and we created some rules. So the rules were at some point in the night, and you can do this in any of your, in any of your gatherings, you ding your glass, you stand up, kind of old school style, and you give a toast. But the toast needs to be a story or an experience of some room that you've been in that no one else knows about that relates to the theme. 
And the only other rule is that the last person of the night has to sing their toast. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, it speeds up the night. So, so we, we tried it out by sort of halfway through the night. People were starting to really share kind of deep stories. And these were people who were, didn't, didn't know each other necessarily, but were broadly colleagues in this network. And as we are, the theme we chose was a good life. And pretty quickly, people were talking about its corollary, which is death. And, and it's a topic that you rarely talk about in circles like this. And, and basically what started to happen over the course of the night was that people started to show their complexity. They started to share stories of who they were that related to why they were actually here. So one woman shared a story that I will never forget and she said, uh, and the rules of the night are Chatham House rules. So you can share the experience and the stories of the, of the evening but not attribute it to the, who it was. So I'm not breaking any rules here. So she shared a story that every morning she does a death meditation. She wakes up, she made it, she made it up, she didn't learn anywhere. She wakes up, she closes her eyes, she breathes, and she thinks about all of the people that she cares about in her life and imagines that she herself has died and she's visiting them. I mean, and this is pretty, you know, intense stuff that she's sharing with a bunch of strangers. And she said, it's, it's sort of like a wonderful life, if you've seen that movie, it's sort of wonderful lifestyle. And she said, and she comes back and she breathes and she kind of wiggles her toes and reminds herself that she's there. And it reminds her that she has a good life and to live radically because she remembers that it's not forever. And so one of the things that, that creates transformative gatherings are people who understand that the moment of a gathering begins at the moment of invitation. The moment, and what does your invitation actually say? So one of the people that I, um, that I studied and spent time with that I adore um, in terms of his work is a guy named Felix Barrett. He is a London produ uh, producer um, of theater, and he, his company is called Punch Drunk. And he started this, now in the US, called uh, sort of Macbethian play called Sleep No More. Have any of you been to it? Yeah? So what, what is Sleep No More? They took like a giant warehouse in New York, and it was like Skyway, and they made the whole thing a set. The doorway was half baked. You didn't know what you were going to get at your dinner, but everybody showed up and had an experience. It's four floors of, you know, crazy stuff. And as the night goes down, it goes from four foot low to the third floor. Yeah, 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 it's very trippy. <laughs> it is very trippy. So it's this kind of crazy, Stephen, um, it's, it was a great description. It's this crazy experience that is loosely based on, based on Macbeth. When you walk in, you get a, a, like a screen type mask to put on over your face. So everybody, you get separated from your people, you walk in, and the first moment you walk in, you get a shot, or at least I did. You're told to get rid of all of your stuff, and you basically go into this two, three hour experience that's very disorienting. The guy who created it is, an, is Felix. And when Felix was getting, after he got engaged, he got a letter in the mail that gave him basically a prompt to go to the river, the bank of the Thames, and to go and to start digging. So he went to the Thames and he started, and he got a shovel. That was what he was, he was given a shovel. So he went and he starts digging. He finds a box and in the box is a bunch of codes and it has, and it basic, and it has one uh, hint in it that says, stay tuned. So he's curious. Over the next six months, Every few weeks or so, he'd get another hint. Sometimes it'd be on a collar of a cat. Sometimes it would be in his mailbox. Sometimes a stranger would come up to him and give him a prompt. And he found himself doing things like, you know, crawling on uh, between boats, like on a rope between boats, trying to get to another boat, doing all these kind of weird risks. 
And he started realizing, like, something's happening. I don't know what it is, but something's happening. And finally, he, one day he gets a white van, you know, sort of pulls up in front of him. He, is, he enters it. And he gets taken blindfolded into a forest, and he walks out, and there's a circle of 12 men standing in robes with their faces covered, and it is his bachelor party. <laughs> and his friends understood what he likes, right, which is these like trippy, risky, weird, discombobulated experiences, and they understood that his bachelor party began at the moment of discovery, at the moment that he got, found that actual key. It was a key that he was sent the first time. And in that case, the, the journey to the openings of the gathering, the opening took six months. And I love this example because it makes us remember what is the, what is the journey that we are giving people to prime them so that they show up in a way that you, they're behaving in a way that is helpful to your purpose. So in his case, he was so kind of excited, rearing to go, scared, nervous, that by the time he showed up, he was, he was completely open to the experience that, that they wanted to give him. Similarly, when you're hosting some, a meeting, you know, rather than thinking, and it can be applied to your work, rather than sending out a Google Calendar invite or an Outlook Calendar invite that says name, you know, date, time, place, think about how you can actually host people to show up in a certain way when they're attending seven meetings a day that shows up in a way that they are showing a part of themselves that you wouldn't otherwise see or that serves your purpose. Name your event, right? So rather than saying just the meeting, is it a workshop? Is it a lab? Is it a hootenanny? Names, <laughs> nay, you're like, I want to go to the hootenanny. Um, names actually prime people to begin to decide which part of myself am I going to show. And one of the things about gatherings is that, is that we are all complicated, multifaceted people, right? I am literally half evangelical Christian, half Hindu theosophist in terms of my, my ancestry. And, and, and then the mix and the clash that comes from being part of that. So how, in what context would I decide to share that? In what context would I emphasize, you know, my husband often jokes that when we first got married, he noticed that when I spent time with my father's family and someone sneezed, I would say, God bless you. And when I spent time with my mother's family and somebody sneezed, I would say, bless you. I took out the God. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. But I, there was implicit, implicit messaging of what is the appropriate language that I want to use and show and be part of to belong. And so as you're thinking about how you create gatherings, think about how do you open, and think about what are you saying to people implicitly and explicitly of how you want them to show up and behave. So if you want them to you know, come to a huge you know, dance party, a really boring you know, email, that's, unless your friends can really quickly kind of like switch, may not be conducive to an all-night rage, rager. Um, similarly, or maybe make you rage. <laughs> similarly, if you want to have people come and be open to sharing something that's vulnerable, put, put that in the email. I recently was speaking to a writer named Jancy Dunn, and she, she called me up and she said, Priya, I want to host a dinner party. Um, how, do I, how would you gatherify it? And I said, okay, we'll give it a purpose. What's the purpose? And she said, every, first of all, every gathering should have a purpose. And the purpose can be really fun. But it's basically, what is a need that you have in your life that you could help, other people could help you with? And she said, well, I'm really exhausted right now. I'm a mom. I have two young kids. I'm, uh, the other day, somebody was, I was at a friend's house. She made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She cut it into triangles. She took crusts off. And it made me feel really loved. And I, and I said, okay. And she said, and I, I realized that I am always in the caretaking role, and I'm never being taken care of. And I want to create a night where I'm being taken care of and I'm taking care of the other moms in my life. And I said, okay, great. Give it a name. 
And she thought about it and she said, the worn out mom's hootenanny. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Starting to have some life. Give it a rule. Okay, if, let's, what if we say, um, if you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. Okay, that's interesting, right? All of a sudden, it, because you're starting to have some life in it. And so then I said, okay, write, write an email. She said, should I do paperless posts? No. Should I do evite? No. Just like simple, simple email. Like you're worn out. Don't do, spend a lot of time on this. And make sure you do takeout. So she wrote an email. I said, include the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She, she started with a story. She made the rule. She called her the worn out mom's hoot nanny. And within an hour, all six friends had confirmed yes. And, and what I say is with, with, with these gatherings is I don't think gatherings take off because of the food or the flowers or the PowerPoint presentation or the things of our gathering. They help. They create an environment. They are a form of love. But I wrote this book because I think that we actually can, can create gatherings that are deeply meaningful, that are funny, that are connected, and that put the people at the center of them. And as you think about the gatherings that you want to create in your life, to, to, to ask these questions. What is it that I need right now that other people might help me with? How do I want them to show up? And if that, if so, what is the language that I should use? How, what are creative ways with that that don't take a lot of time that have them come in? What are the rules that I might make for this temporary alternative world? Can I have everybody leave their phones at the door? Can I have the first person to look at their phone pay for the entire bill? <laughs> can I have a networking night where no one's allowed to talk about what they actually do for a living? Can I have a, to can I have a dinner party where we have one, one, rule, one rule and that's everyone has one conversation? And, and how do I host in a way that people feel cared for, protected, and equalized? So that as you begin to think about giving people ways in to talk to each other, even tonight, you learned that somebody recently moved from Honolulu, Hawaii. We learned that two people were born in the same hospital. Where were those people? We learned that, <laughs> he's like, me, me. Um, we learned that some of you have never been ghosted or have never ghosted. We, know, we learned that some of you have no idea what ghosting is. <laughs> And, and that we learned that all of you here are tonight are here tonight and at some level because the, the an ideas night, something about ideas night attracted you and you decided to say yes. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer.